Who said no blacks allowed in orchestra seats? Leave the balcony empty tonight. Let that be jazz. Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm guest editor Esther Boleyn, coming to you from the four corners of the United States. Today, I'm speaking with A. Van Jordan. Van is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whiting Writers Award, and a Pushcart Prize. He was born in Akron, Ohio, and his poetry is influenced by music, film, race, history, and pop culture. Today, we'll hear two poems from his forthcoming book, When I Waked, I Cried to Dream Again. The title comes from The Tempest, and the book celebrates Black youth, while also linking how narratives about Black youth today intersect with Black and mixed-race characters in Shakespeare's plays. Van, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. First off, I need to tell you that I am awestruck that you accepted my invitation to talk about poetry. I I consider you a master poet. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for thanks for saying that. And as I get to know your work, I, I sense this great intensity in your process and a very humble honoring. And I say that because I feel that your work uncovers history in a very tender way. Mm. We have so much to talk about, and so let's get started with your latest work, which is a book that incorporates Shakespeare and maybe his poetics and definitely some of his characters. So how did that project start? I have to say that it really started in Marfa, Texas. I was fortunate to get the Landon Literary Award, and what came with that was some time in Marfa. And while I was flying over there, my Wi-Fi had gone out on my laptop. And I just didn't have the bandwidth at the time to read anything worth reading. So I started looking at things that were already downloaded on my laptop. And The Tempest by Julie Taymor, the, the film that she had done, where she changed Prospero to Prospera. At this hour, lie at my mercy all mine enemies. And had cast Helen Mirren in that role. Shortly shall all my labors end, and thou shalt have the air at freedom. I was curious about the way in which she changed the language to match this female Prospera. It was sort of obsessing over that at the time. And while all this was, was happening, you know, I was also watching the news. And so we had, you know, Tamir Rice happening, Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown before that. And, you know, I think like a lot of us, we see the, all this stuff happening in the world. And uh, I think if you're an artist, you sometimes, you feel like you want to get involved, but you also might feel a bit ineffective. Mm. And I know that was some of what was happening inside me at the time. You know, so sometimes you have to feel like, you know, there's a war going on in Ukraine. People are out in the streets protesting what's happening with George Floyd. There's folks in some town where they don't have water. All this stuff is going on, and I'm somewhere writing a poem. Mm -hmm. And it just seems a little precious. And so all of that was part of the meditation I was, I was dealing with. And in this lovely home I was staying in, they had uh, the complete works of, of Shakespeare. And I, I don't know if I would have gravitated 
to that in the way that I did had I not been thinking about that and had it in the fore of my mind from the trip. But I did. I was all into it. And <laughs> I was like combing through the language. And <laughs> But then I also started taking note of the characters and particularly Aaron the Moor and Titus Andronicus and Caliban the Tempest and of course Othello. Just thinking about the ways in which when these characters appear on stage, there are all these presuppositions that are already sort of baked into their character mm-hmm. from the other characters on stage. Or they have these reputations that precede them. Yeah. There are all these assumptions that are sort of given to the audience. And it seemed a lot like what was happening when I would watch the news. Like before we would hear anything about who these victims were, we would first hear about the police encounter, about mm. some record they may have had when they were juveniles or something, or who they associated with, you know, anything to besmirch the character of these figures. And so I remember the first thing people mentioned uh, when they talked about Tamir Rice was that he was big for his age and he looked like a grown man and that the gun that he was brandishing looked like a real gun. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then you find out that, you know, he's 12 years old and he's got this cherubic little face and that the gun that he may have been playing with, this, this toy gun, uh, he didn't get, even get a chance to pull it out for the police to make the assumption that he was carrying a real weapon. You know, before the car that they were driving up on this grass in the middle of this park, before the car came to a complete stop, they shot him. And so less than two seconds. I, you know, for me, there seemed to be a parallel. It was just something I couldn't shake. You, you wrote a poem about that scenario. You wrote a poem about what happened, Airsoft. Would you read that for us? Sure, I'd be happy to. Airsoft. Like a whisper from a friend telling a secret, the gun reveals itself only to invite, not start any trouble, mind you, just to invite the boy who listens to come out to play. And the boy knows not so much what the gun's pellet says as he understands what the pellet will mean to say, whistling through a windy afternoon, past onlookers who neither hear nor see the streak of inhuman intent searing through the ether. So he takes his airsoft pellet gun in hand, as he might take his laces in hand, to tighten them more securely around his juvenile ankles. That's to say, without much care, but just out of habit before taking off to run. Everyone runs faster with tight laces. This makes sense, of course, and the hope to run can excite as much as hitting full stride with wind washing over a boy's face. And the toy guns masquerade as lethal guns in a boy's dreamland where no one dies, where they simply lie down and play dead, but they live to play on. As mysterious as a cat in a box, a toy gun in a black boy's pocket, the gun neither dead nor alive, unless offered a chance to empty his pocket to solve the paradox of what a day 
might hold. Yeah, I I feel uh, an urgency to tell that story and to give it a chance to be told in a very, a way that unfolds uh, just in a tender way, like unwrapping a package. And, you know, it is a gift. And, you know, makes me think, you know, this November will be the eighth anniversary of his death. And as you mentioned, he was 12 years old when he was killed. You know, how did that incident in Ohio connect to your, connect to the Ohio that you know? Uh, You know, I grew up not too far from where he grew up. Uh, I grew up in Akron, Ohio. It was a great place to to be young, particularly at the time I was growing up. But, I mean, there was still a good deal of racial tension. I mean, there were parts of town that, you just didn't go to because, you know, it was known that black folks weren't welcome there. You know, so when I was a a kid, my brothers and I, we were in a part of town called Cuyahoga Falls. It's like a suburb of Akron and Cuyahoga Falls was known and and still often known, you know, called by people Caucasian Falls Mm. because it was where, you know, they still had the covenants where, you know, if you were black, even with a GI Bill, you cannot buy property there. And my one brother and I, uh, we were out in that area because my mom went to a seamstress there. We were sort of uh, in the same plaza, kind of walking around, killing time. And it was a Sunday afternoon after church. And this police car pulls up, much like the, the way it pulled up on Tamir Rice, came in hot. The cops jumped out of the car with their guns drawn. You know, I'm in a little suit <laughs> wow. in third grade. You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, and so these guys are questioning us and saying that they got a report that it was shoplifting. You know, it was one of these moments I think about now and realize how fortunate we were. Mm-hmm. But it's also one of those things where you you think about how often these encounters happen, uh, how we have over time have kind of taken it as par for the course you hear that the joke of Richard Pryor about uh, being stopped by the police and I, I it's too profane to go into here but you know like he goes through you know getting frisked and they tell him uh you know have a nice day at the end of it and he's like you know you know how the f I'm gonna have a nice day after all that shit you know so yeah. he just kind of goes on and so and so it's just like one of those things like you would hear about it you grew up with it you know by now most of America also knows about the talk that happens in African-American families. It's just that the rest of the country has gotten hip to it now Mm -hmm. because of cell phones and body cam footage and things like that. Uh, When I look at Tamir Rice, he becomes uh, emblematic of the the perils of being in the black body, even as a young boy. Should have the opportunity to play and make mistakes and be a kid, whether good or bad or, or, or brilliant and precocious or whatever. Uh, you should just have a chance to to do that. You know, when you when you mention emblematic, I think you know when does a, a black person, a black child, become a threat? And now that's part of our our history. And I feel like that's something you have built up in your work 
you know, there's a courageousness there to not only confront that, but I think confront it in a way that is more of an offering. Um, so tell me about some of the the research or the different journeys that you include in this new book. Yeah, so it's varied. Some of it, I, you know, I, I have to say, sometimes when I say research, I feel like I'm putting on airs or something because some of it is just, I guess, is in, intellectual curiosity, but a lot of it's just boyish curiosity as well. Like, it's just kind of like, there's something I want to know more about and filling in the gaps of my ignorance. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've, I've had a thing for Shakespeare since I was an undergrad <laughs> and I, I did a study abroad and at the University of London and, and I kind of planted a seed. And so I've been going to plays for some time and, and over, over the years I've seen a, a number of plays and with black actors in them. You know, like I saw Denzel as Richard III and Mary Alice as the Queen Mm. Danny Oyewolo as Othello not too long ago, playing opposite Daniel Craig as uh, Iago. When I think about some of those performances and I think about what it would take for an actor to inhabit these characters, you know, when you have a, a character who's black playing one of these uh, sort of Moorish characters from that time, like, what does it take to get in that mindset? Because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I think sometimes people assume, well, you know, if you're black, of course you can play Othello. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, but you, yeah. you know, but I mean, you, you know, you see um, Harry Lennox play uh, Aaron the Moor in, in Titus Andronicus. He's inhabiting this attitude of 16th century, like this Moor. He has the the sort of sagacity and the audacity of that character, and he's holding all of that in him and presenting all of that in this, uh, at the time, you know, 20th century body. Uh, and I felt the same way watching Denzel on stage as Richard III, playing a character that wasn't meant for a black actor, but, you know, what, what does it mean to bring that in that body? There's a black Shakespearean scholar, Patricia Akeme, who just really opened up a window into thinking about the ways in which humor is used to create stereotype. And, you know, you go into a theater, audience is, uh, you know, predominantly white and of a certain class. And then if there's a character, you know, a person of color, Jewish characters who may not be in a part of that audience, those characters are depicted on stage and they're often the butt of jokes or demonized in some way. Mm-hmm. And then people leave the theater and they go out and encounter this Moor or this Jewish person. And they've carried with them this uh, sort of caricature of them. Mm-hmm. And so she sort of talks about the way in which that operates. And it's, it's not just Shakespeare, but just a lot of what was going on on the early modern stage at the time dealt with that. It also it, it coincided in the late 1590s, it coincided with Britain's interest in slavery and the slave trade. And it's so interesting because I think we're talking about something that's hundreds of years old, but those constructs like affect us now in pop cultural references, film, yeah, music. Yeah, it's, it's all still there. You know, that's the thing about it. Like we think we see this stuff happening around us and. And I hear people 
talk about, oh, it's gotten so bad. I'm like, you know, think of how bad it was in the late 1500s. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> what we're seeing now, uh, we're seeing the vestiges of, of what was then. And we think about the construction of race and things like that. And this is this is all a part of that. It's, you know, we think about having to go into a sociological text for that, but it's in the literature. It's in the arts. And it's been there for time immemorial. So it's uh, it's not new. So let's hear a poem from the last section of the book, which references A Midsummer Night's Dream and the incredible Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn album that borrows from the line, I never heard so musical a discord, such sweet thunder. Can you introduce and read the poem, Such Sweet Thunder? Sure. So the album Such Sweet Thunder is... Uh, Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn, uh, amazing collaboration. And the music is in response to the work of Shakespeare. And both Ellington and Strayhorn are invited to play at the Stratford Shakespearean Festival in 1956. They, you know, partake in the landscape uh, as well as watching the performances. They took the invite very seriously. And they read the plays and sonnets, and they composed a whole suite of songs based on uh, Shakespeare's works. And so Such Sweet Thunder is the, the title of the album. Uh, I should also say this is a guzzle. You know, guzzles are usually traditionally sung, so it just seemed like a great form for honoring Ellington. Such Sweet Thunder. Stratford Shakespearean Festival, Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn, 1956. Minor chords ring across Stratford farmland. We jazz wherever we're called. Local ears lift to see jazz. Their hearts hear in places their minds roam. Oh, if the bard could be black, she'd be jazz. If the hogs across the way, just for a moment, were swans released in a lake, they think, this is the sea, jazz. Tell me, if Cleo walked in here right now, would her stride royal to her jeweled toes be jazz? Britt Whitman's Hank sank and all them octave jumps. Slide your trombone, man, free jazz. Now wipe the sleep from your eyes. The time has come. Your ideas must speak the language that be jazz. Who said no blacks allowed in orchestra seats? Leave the balcony empty tonight. Let that be jazz. Emmett Till's body found floating in the Tallahatchie River. Emmett Till's name still rises and, believe me, that be jazz. Schools in Topeka, Kansas threw open their doors. Integration? Call it what you want, but shit, man, that be jazz. Tamara's baby came out black you say damn the more i hear of aaron the more the more i think don't that be jazz a note above a note below the note between the tonic enclosed pivoted up octave that be jazz oh if the bard could be black her stride would be royal jeweled toes 
Your ideas must speak. Aaron and more. Teal's name still rises. That be jazz. The circle of fourths comes full circle now. You bards, Duke, Billy, the children are dancing. Enough. Let that be jazz. Ellington, he, he was a genius. And so I think he connected with the genius of Shakespeare and he could see into it. And, you know, and when he was in 1956 at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival, that was it was a big deal that he was able to be there. Uh, I'm a jazz head anyway, so I, I love Ellington. I think he's one of America's great composers. I think what he's doing is it's jazz, it's big band, but it's also like America's classical music, you know, so it's beautiful. Let's listen to some of the music from the album, Such Sweet Thunder. Here's University of New Hampshire professor of English, Douglas Lanier, speaking with interviewer Barbara Bogave on the Shakespeare Unlimited podcast. He really does manage to sample Shakespeare's greatest hits. So there's Midsummer from the comedies, there's Midsummer Night's Dream. There's Taming of the Shrew. From the tragedies, you've got Hamlet and Macbeth. Antony and Cleopatra and Julius Caesar. What Ellington had done was to create a melody line that mirrors exactly the 14-line iambic pentameter that Shakespeare has. In other words, what he did was he wrote 14 small melodies that were of 10 notes each. So I'm thinking you were aware of the technical aspects that Duke Ellington, that he worked in. So, I mean, did you incorporate some of the more traditional poetics in your book? I I wasn't really trying to replicate what Ellington was doing, but I was more thinking about how to honor what he was doing. And, And so the guzzle was the form that just, to, to bring his voice in. I just thought that was the way to, to go with that. And there's some nonce forms in the in the book and uh, there are villanelles and, and things like that in there as well. I don't I don't know if people would always notice them as villanelles though, because some of them are, are kind of dispersed. They're fragments, sapphic fragments and things like that. And I guess they kind of form light or so. I don't know what the, how to call it, but... I like that. Yeah, they're... Um, I just, I just feel like anytime you're writing, even in free verse, there's the, the, the shadow of form beneath it. I think it's hard not to have, you know, some kind of formal gesture, whether it's just thinking about, you know, how your line works or, 
you know, how your stanza is structured or something. Yeah, that's definitely in our DNA as poets. I think we always have that sort of shadow of traditional forms. Let's hear a little bit more of the album, Such Sweet Thunder, and hear how some of the Shakespearean characters are referenced. At times, it's almost musically experimental. The, the lovers are represented by four different instruments that are out of tune and sort of chatter with one another. And at the end of the piece, you have almost the most single recognizable moment where you know it's Shakespeare. On one of the takes, Clark Terry, in a a little section at the very end of the song, basically uses his trumpet to say, Lord, what fools these mortals be. So writing about race and writing about history and the complexity of it, you know, sometimes in my own work, I have such a difficult time knowing when and how to craft things and really just, you know, wondering how you manage that, like how you make those decisions on you know, when to introduce these things and, and in what format? Yeah, that's always uh, it's a tough question. I, what I'm always thinking about is, is there another way, another angle that we can bring up mm-hmm. that might jar people into awareness? Mm-hmm. You know, because I think what happens is that, particularly now, particularly with um, social media, folks get sort of seduced by the common language around a subject and the jargon that's kind of thrown around, then it becomes like white noise. You know, like you don't, after a while, I don't think people hear it. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you wake them up out of that state of being almost anesthetized to what's being said and what's going on around you? You have to try to think of, is there another way to talk about this? And sometimes we, we think about this in our most common language in our, and like when we're talking among ourselves, you know, this is like being in a Shakespeare play or something, you know what I mean? It's just, you realize like, you know, there are different things that happen. It's high drama. It's like, it's already, the stage is set. Part of the research, I had a, a conversation with Arthur L. Little Jr., who's a wonderful Shakespearean scholar, just boundless knowledge on the Tempest. And uh, one of the things he pointed out to me was the relationship, you know, between Caliban and his mother, Sycorax, who never appears in the play. So uh, many people know that, you know, the Prospero, he's um, kind of cheated out of his seat is in Milan, his dukedom by his brother. And he ends up on this island that he with his daughter, uh, Miranda, He's, he ends up there and basically takes the island captive with his magic. And the person who was there before him was Caliban. 
and his mother, Sycorax, uh, they are indigenous to the island. What we know of the island, what we know of the, its inhabitants, what we know of the story, what we know of the storm that supposedly set everything in motion is that it's all from the uh, hand of Prospero. It seems to have a strange kind of animus for Sycorax, which is, is, is kind of unexplained. Like why, like why does he care about Caliban's mother so much? And so it made me start, I started thinking about why it was so important to besmirch all the way through legacy in that way mm-hmm. and what that means. Why is it so important to turn everyone else on the island, the spirit, Ariel, the other folks from Milan who get shipwrecked there? Everyone has to be turned against Sycorax and turned against Caliban. And Caliban has to be demonized and made into this monster. You know, there are things that don't always add up. Kind of going back to your your earlier question, Esther, about like how do we, you know, how do we, you know, manage all this stuff and and write about it? It's kind of the same way you're asking yourself, well, what, how do I, how do I make sense of this thing that doesn't make sense? Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, like what what can I do to sort of put some order to this? And often you just kind of have to call it and say, look, th- it doesn't make sense. Like, you know, this is BS. Like, you know, like this is this is what happened. This is just what you've been told. This is just what was said about this person. This isn't their actual experience. This isn't their actual spirit. This isn't even what happened. And so you're going through trying to figure out, well, how now can I render that and and, and approximate some of that confusion that we're feeling when we know better? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to consider when you're building this cast of characters and also modernizing it, making it accessible for people to really kind of say, pay attention right here. Like things are are still happening. And especially around, you know, you, you said anesthetizing mm-hmm. that numbness around mm-hmm. the numbers of people who have perished, yeah. right, in such similar ways in this country. And so I could see how the momentum has has faded. And, and I feel like the beauty of, of writing and the poetry and the art, that's foundational. Yeah. So we can always go back to it. I love being part of that process. I love how you're contributing to that process. And I'm, I'm excited hearing about your work. Thank you. Thank you. It was great chatting with you and very honored. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for the work you're doing with Poetry as the guest editor. It's been an honor to be a part of this. So I really appreciate it. Human intent searing through the ether. So he takes his airsoft pellet gun in hand, as he might take his laces in hand, to tighten them more securely around his juvenile ankles. That's to say, without much care, but just out of habit before taking off to run. Everyone runs faster with tight laces. This makes sense, of course, and the hope to run can excite as much 
as hitting full stride with wind washing over a boy's face. And the toy guns masquerade as lethal guns in a boy's dreamland where no one dies, where they simply lie down and play dead, but they live to play on. As mysterious as a cat in a box, a toy gun in a black boy's pocket, the gun neither dead nor alive, unless offered a chance to empty his pocket to solve the paradox of what a day might hold. A big thanks to Avan Jordan. And another big thanks to Rachel James. I've had the pleasure of working with her the last few months on these podcasts, and she is a big part of their success. Avan Jordan's fifth book, When I Waked, I Cried to Dream Again, is forthcoming from W.W. Norton. You can read three poems by Jordan in the September 2022 issue of Poetry in print and online. We'd also like to thank the Shakespeare Unlimited podcast from the Folger Shakespeare Library. You heard an excerpt from Duke Ellington Shakespeare and Such Sweet Thunder from January 2019. If you're not a subscriber to Poetry Magazine, there's a special rate for podcast listeners. For a limited time, you can get a full year of the magazine for $20. That's 11 book-length issues for just $20. Visit poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer to subscribe. That's poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer. Okay, signing off for now. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and thank you for listening.